0: Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, and we will read uh, verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children and heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And so on. I'm glad you considered this passage with you, beginning at verse 15 and through to verse 25 passage which deals with the subject of the sons of God. Now, a fortnight ago today, when I was with you, we looked at the first part of this chapter in which we saw the distinction that the apostle draws between the Christian and the non Christian with reference to the flesh. And the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. We saw that the life of the non-Christian is dominated by the flesh and the things of the flesh. He lives after the flesh, he walks after the flesh, his mind is on the things of the flesh and so on. Whereas the Christian, his life is regulated by the Holy Spirit. He walks in the Spirit, he lives in the Spirit, he thinks upon the things of the Spirit and uh, so on and uh, we saw that the Christian also has this great privilege in that he is helped by the Holy Spirit he, um, the Holy Spirit indwells him and the Holy Spirit leads him as many as are led by the Spirit of God they are the sons of God And the particular aspect of the leading of the Spirit, which the chapter here speaks of, is leading, helping, guiding, directing the Christian in the conflict that he has to wage with the flesh and the things of the flesh, and so on. He is a man who is locked in battle, engaged in conflict, and the particular aspect of the spirit's leading that we are here uh, brought face to face with, therefore, is the help that the spirit gives the Christian in this conflict. And we saw that that help is not in this way. He isn't born above the field of conflict. He isn't lifted up above and beyond these things, so that they don't, so that they are not realities in his life. He. Lives in this present evil world, confronted with all that is real about the flesh and sin, and the Spirit leads her, helps her to overcome the victory in the field of conflict. And today, as we turn to this passage beginning at verse 15, we will look first of all at the position that the Christian occupies the very privileged position that he has in this conflict. He is spoken of as a son or a child of God. In verse 14, they are the sons of God. In verse 16, they are the children of God. And in verse 17 again, children and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And uh, in verse 21, <laughs> we will be brought in the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, these passages, these verses speak of this privileged position that he has, the Christian has. He is a son of God, a child of God. And then, secondly, look at the place which the Holy Spirit occupies with reference to that son, or with reference to the sonship of the Christian. In verse 15 he is the spirit of adoption. He is the spirit who has brought us into that relationship with God. We have been adopted into the family of God so that we are now called the children of God or the sons of God. And as members of that family, as sons, the Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirits concerning our sonship. Verse 16 the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit, and this is what he tells us, that we are the children of God. In other words, the spirit confirms to our spirit or to our hearts the knowledge that we already have, that we are the children of God. And then, as children, we are brought face to face with our privileges in two ways, we are heirs of God, verses 16 and 17 and jointed with Christ these are the privileges that we have as sons with reference to God and then and more particularly this passage brings before us from verse 18 to verse 23 the pathway that we travel in this world as the children of God we are on the way to glory. This is the theme here. This is the thrust. But on the way, as children in this world, we suffer. If we are to reign with Him, then we must suffer. So there you have the pathway of the Christian brought before you as a pathway which is full of sufferings on the way to glory. And interestingly, in this passage, something is in sympathy with the Christian as he suffers on the way to glory. It is the creation. From verse 19 onwards, the earnest expectation of the creator of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation, verse 20, was made subject to vanity. Verse 31, the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans and travels in pain together until now. So there you have a very wonderful picture in the Bible of the world, the creation around you. The creation around the Christian in sympathy with him as he groans his way in suffering towards the glory that awaits him. Finally you have in this passage something else. The great encouragement that he has in the path of suffering towards glory. In verse 43, he has the evidence in him, the first fruit of the Spirit. He has as he goes, as as he journeys along, as he journeys from time to eternity, he has a forest of this glory in his heart. The Spirit gives him a foretaste of what awaits him. That's in any other word, first fruits. And then the other encouragement he has that his hope is certain to be fulfilled. We are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for that, we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, very briefly this morning, I'd like to just uh, go through these thoughts with you. First of all, the position that the Christian occupies in this world, he is the son of God, he is a child of God. Now, there are some who are of the opinion, and I think correctly, that this is really the, the, the apex of uh, the, redeem, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. You know that there are three great privileges that, and some of the children in the Sunday school just now are doing this catechism. There are three great privileges that the Christians have in connection with the redemption that Christ has purchased for them. And these privileges are justification, adoption, and sanctification. Now, <clears throat> justification, just to put it, just to, to explain the terms very briefly to you. Justification is a term which speaks about what God does for us. He puts our relationship to himself right. He puts our standing right. He puts us right. Adoption is the position into which God brings us as those who have been put right. We are brought into his family as those who have been justified. By faith in Christ. We are brought into this relationship with God. We become his children. And sanctification is the process that God therein begins, that God begins when we are justified and when we are adopted. He begins a process by which he is making us right. He is cleaning us away from sin, winning us away from sin and cleansing us. From sin until, at the end of the process of sanctification, we have what we call holiness. Holiness is the end product of sanctification. Now, adoption is—if you were going to—if you were going to—if you were going to, to, dist- to say—if it were right to say this—and I think it is—we could say this. We would say it. That adoption is a more wonderful privilege than justification it's wonderful that God could put any of us right it is even more wonderful that we would be made the children of God and this is the thing that John spoke about when he said in chapter 3 look look at this behold what manner of love the greatness of the love of God that we should be called the children of God this was the thing that he couldn't get over God has made me a child of his. And this is the theme of the apostle here. We are sons of God. We are children of God. We 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 have been brought into this wonderful relationship in which God is beginning a process so that at the end of the process we will be like himself. The idea here is the idea of family likeness. This is why God brings us into his family. So that we will become less and less like the family we were taken out of and become more and more like the family we are brought into. As sinners unsaved we were, as Jesus says, ye are of your father the devil. We belonged to his family. And we were governed by the flesh, as the first part of this chapter tells us. These were the things that mattered to us in that family bond. All that mattered was sin and the service of sin. And the more a person is in the service of sin, the more it becomes like the devil whom he says. But now... In justification of standing as put right and in adoption, we are brought into the family of God. And we begin to serve the Lord as a son. We love him as a son loves his father. We respect him as a son respects his father. And in that family, the Christian is becoming more like the God whom he serves. So that at the end of that process of sanctification, the Christian will be perfect like his Father in Heaven. He will be perfect like his Saviour Jesus Christ. And when at the end of time Jesus stand before the Father and say Father behold I and the children which thou hast given me those for whom I died in the world and those who were sanctified by thy spirit in the world look at them at the end of the day it will be said of that whole family including Christ that he will be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, they will all be like their older brother, and he will have the preeminence amongst them. The sons are the children of God. That's a position, the privileged position, that the Christian occupies with reference to God. He is a son of God. And then, secondly, this passage tells us of the place that the Holy Spirit has in this privileged position of the Christian. He is, in verse 15, the spirit of adoption. And he is, in verse 16, the spirit that witnesses to them that they are the children of God. Now, The spirit of adoption here, I know that this is rather a difficult term, but this isn't I haven't got time really to to deal with this fully, there are lots of things that could be said about this. But let's confine ourselves just to one thing. The Holy Spirit is he who, as it were, brings the individual into this privileged position in which he is a son of God. He is the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of bondage. The Holy Spirit, in other words, works in a person's heart not to make that person afraid of God, but to give that person the freedom of a son in his relation to God. He brings us into our relationship with God in which we adopt the disposition of the spirit of a son with reference to his father. Our relationship to God has changed. So that now we begin to reverence God. We respect God. We love God. We have faith in God. We are thankful to God. With others, we are brothers in the presence of God. And with others, we share fellowship by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As sons, we trust in the fatherly care of God. As sons, we obey lovingly the demands of our Father in Heaven. As sons, we want to become like our Father who is in heaven. We have a desire to be conformed to his image. We have a desire to become holy, to become God-like in our relationships. That is the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit adopts us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit brings us into this relationship when he indwells us. And the Holy Spirit bestows upon us and instills within us the spirit of the Son, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of a, of a childlike relationship to our Father in heaven. He produces this disposition within us. And then, with that disposition, verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And again, this is a very difficult verse. Again, lots of things to be said about it. But just again, let's confine ourselves to one thing. But whatever else he's saying, I think he's saying this. That the Holy Spirit confirms to our own spirits the evidence that we have ourselves that we are the children of God. Notice how he puts it. The spirit bears witness with of two our spirit, or the Spirit bears witness together with our spirits, that we are the children of God. In other words, there are two ways here in which a Christian can know that he is a child of God. There are two ways in which you can know it. First of all, you can come to that conclusion. From the evidence that you have within yourself that the Holy Spirit has given you the disposition of a Christian, the disposition of a son. Answer the questions that I mentioned earlier, the things that I mentioned earlier. A Christian, a child of God, a son of God, is a person who has reverence for God, respect for God as his father, love for God as his father. Honour to God as his Father. Obedience to the will of God as his Father. A desire to be conformed to the image of his Father in heaven. A desire to become holy like God his Father in heaven. A desire to have fellowship with God with others who are the children of God. Now, these are the things which are true of every single Christian. No matter who... Or who he or she is. It's true of every Christian that they have this disposition. You have this evidence in yourself. You can deduce these things. You can come to the conclusion that you are a Christian from the evidence that you have within you. That these things are there. But there's something else. The Holy Spirit also witnesses with you, Spirit, that you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit confirms as he as He uh, uh, brings his own influence to bear upon your spirit that you are a child of God. In other words, this is a witness over and above, the witness that you have yourself. You have, we have the witness in ourselves, says John. We have the witness in ourselves that we are the children of God. Every Christian has that witness in himself. The evidence in himself. But here is a privilege that every Christian has as well. From time to Maybe not all time. The assurance that the Holy Spirit communicates to him. When he witnesses infallibly to him. That he is a child of God. No, I don't say that the, that the Christian has this all the time. I would say that there are times when the Christian has it more clearly than at other times. I would say that the Christian always has the disposition of a son because he is always a son of God. He is never anything else but a child of God. And apart from these cases when he may be in a backslidden state, when he has no right. To say that he is a child of God because he doesn't have the evidence that he is a child of God. But apart from these situations, every Krishna has the evidence in himself that he or she is a child of God at all times. He has the disposition of the son, the attitude of the child to the father, reverence, respect, obedience, love, faith, trust, and so on. Though there are times when that may not be all that clear to him. But what I do say is this that there are also times in every Christian's experience when the Holy Spirit, in His own wonderful way, convinces him with infallible evidence, assures him that he is a child of God. I'm sure that there have been times, if you want to predict this. I'm sure that there have been times when you've come into a place of worship, maybe feeling pretty down in the dumps, as I say, and maybe dead in your spirit. A Christian? Perhaps as we're singing here today, Psalm 42, Oh thou, my soul, why are you cast down? Why are you so dismayed within me? There are times when you come in feeling pretty indifferent, haven't you? To some place of worship, and perhaps God in that place has used something, a sermon, a prayer, or something... To, 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 to bring home in a wonderful way to your heart with convincing evidence, the fact that you are a Christian. The Spirit witnessed and you went out that door, rejoicing in your heart, absolutely assured that you were a Christian. What was it? The Spirit witnessing was your spirit that you're a child of God. There are many ways which the Holy Spirit does it. I haven't got time to deal with it. Then we have thirdly here the privileges of the son in verse 16 and 17. He is an heir of God and he's a joint heir with Christ. This is God as we... God, as the as psalmist says, Psalm 16, God is mine inheritance. Again, Psalm 73. Who do I have in the heavens but thee, O Lord? The Christian, in other words, is an heir of God. He is... He has, he has a right. An entanglement... To all that God is and all that God has, that God can communicate to him there are things that God cannot give him. You know what they are, the incommunicable attributes of God. God cannot give that to anybody, his eternity, his infinity, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence and so on. But he is an heir of all that God can give to him. And he is an heir of God with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. And this speaks of Christ glorified in our human nature. When Christ was, when he went up on high, he received what he prayed for. Father, glorify me with thine own self, for the glory I had with thee before the worlds began, before the worlds were. He went in to share in his human nature, the glory of God, the greatest and the majesty of God. And in Christ, we are heirs of that as well, because Christ was united to us in his death. And now in our adoption, we are united to him. He is our brother. And we are right to the glory of God in Christ. We are jointed with Christ. That's what makes us heirs of God. The fact that we are united by faith to Christ in our effectual calling. And the fact that as children our faith is in him, we are with him, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ of God. And then fourthly, as the Christian lives in this world, a child of God, a son of God, an heir of God heading towards the glory of God. The pathway that he has to tread is now brought before us in verses 18 to 23. That is, if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings at this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory shall be revealed in us, and so on. Here we have now a picture of the Son on the way to glory. He is led there by the Spirit. He walks there. He struggles on towards this glory. The earth lives no easy life. He isn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He finds the going pretty rough and pretty tough. He is to suffer that he may be glorified. These are the conditions underlying the victory that awaits. The privilege of sonship here implies taking part in all the experiences that he must pass through as a Christian, and we can ascend to the throne and high with Christ only by treading. With him the pathway by which he ascended to the throne. It was for him the way of the cross to the crown. It was from the cross that he rose to heaven. Don't let us forget it. It was from the cross that Jesus rose to heaven. And it is from the cross that you and I are to go as well to heaven. And therefore sufferings and tragedies and pain and disease and infirmities, sorrows and death and setbacks, battles, conflicts, these are the constant companions of the Christian in this life. These things are never far away from any one of us in this world. Together with the hostility and the persecution and the misrepresentation that you must of necessity have to endure because you're a Christian in this world. Don't let us forget it. Don't let us forget either that it isn't easy always to adapt ourselves to these things to adopt a someone has put us a stiff upper lip attitude, always to have a calm exterior and an unruffled calm inside. That isn't always the case with a Christian. Often our minds are oppressed with questions and doubts and fears. As the battle rages around us and within us, there is upheaval. Verse 20, the creed to the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly. We've got the same thing in verse 21. The creed should be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And again in verse 22... The whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also. Even we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Of course, life is tough. Of course, it can be very difficult, very difficult indeed. But then you see, even the difficulties the Christian is sustained by two things. What are they? In this passage we read here, verse 18, we are to look in our sufferings to the crown. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see the present is compared to the future. And the relative greatness Of the sufferings here are contrasted with the greatness of the glory that awaits. And the greatness of the sufferings, great though they may be, pale into insignificance compared with the glory and the greatness of the glory that is to be. This is exactly Paul's argument when he wrote to the Corinthians and said, we are suffering here, he says, but our sufferings are only for a short time. And our sufferings are only going to endure for a short time. And our sufferings are only going to be light. Why could he say that? While we look, he says, not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And something else, the Christian is sustained in his sufferings by the thought, that he's going to leave them behind. There's a day coming. When. Tough though the going is today. That will have been left behind. And then something else that sustains him. And this passage speaks of it. And I'm really finished. from verses 19 to 22. The sympathy that the. As someone has put it. That the subhuman creation has. With the Christian as he suffers. In this world. You see, there is a sense in which the world which you and I live, this creation, the universe, there is a sense in which the universe itself is looking forward to deliverance. Because as Paul here puts it, the the, the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him was objected to the same and hope. In other words, sin, Adam by his sin, brought catastrophe not into his own life but into the existence of the universe so that this world takes take the world now of the world this world today the world which you and I live the creation around us isn't able to fulfill the purpose rightly fully for which it was for which it was brought into be and why was it brought into be supremely, to glorify God. But sin has marked the very creation of which you and I are. The very earth in which we live. On which we walk and in which we struggle. And in which we have these conflicts and these experiences. Which shock us from time to time. In a sense this world itself is not sympathy with us. That's what the Bible says, that the day is going to come when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and then the heavens and the earth will fully fulfill the purpose for which they were created. And the picture that, 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 that the, the idea, the kind, of, the kind of picture at the back of, of the apostle's mind here is, as someone has put it, it's almost like, like, like a labour room. In, in, in a maternity hospital, where the the, the creation is, is 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 struggling as it were to come to the birth, to to get to get to its to its real fulfillment And the same with a Christian in this creation. He too is struggling for emergence into this newness of life, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's the picture that the apostle has for us here of the Christian struggling to get out of this of this of the space in which he's so confined, like a child, wanting to get out of the womb. He's confined now, he wants into a bigger into in, into a into a bigger environment. And so it is with the Christian in this world in which he lives and struggles and sighs. And yearns with sorrow and whatnot In this world, he's wanting to get out. He's wanting to get away. He's wanting to get into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He's waiting for the redemption of his body. His spirit struggles within a sinful body. And the spirit wants to get rid of sin. And the body wants to get rid of sin as well. And together they're groaning, struggling, looking forward to this deliverance from all the Thames of men in this world. And if you're a Christian, you know what that is. Don't you think that it's wrong? Because you're having it rough today as a Christian, don't think that it's wrong for you to want to get away from the struggles? And the difficulties and the conflicts and the disappointments of this present evil world. There are some people who say, Oh, it's wrong for a Christian to want that, is it? What are you gonna make of of Second Corinthians chapter five? When Paul when Paul says that say, a that that, 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 is, uh, that is wanting. What is he talking about? We want to get away. We know that if our earth house of this tabernacle to we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be called upon with our house which is from heaven. What kind of Christians are we if we don't look forward to perfection in the presence of Christ? What kind of Christians are we? If we don't long for deliverance for our souls and our bodies. Do you know what it is? You see, there are people who say to you, it's wrong for a Christian to want away." way. Why do they say that? They say that because they're only looking at one side of the page. The side of the page they're looking at is this, this. Oh, it's wrong for you to be rebellious against the providence of God my friend, there's another side to that page and it is this. The groaning is not just a groaning to be rid of, but a groaning to be satisfied with. And that's where the difference comes in. And that's what the Christian has as no one else has. Oh, I know that there are people in the world today who are suffering, who are wracked with pain and perhaps whose sole thought is to get away. I know it. But then you see, that's where the other side of the Christian's page comes in. That not only are there times when he's desperate to get away from the sufferings and the difficulties, but he's also desperate to get away to the place where there are no sufferings, and no pain, and no difficulties, and no sighs, and no sorrows. And as he struggles in this world, with these, as it were, with these birth pans, waiting for that emergence, he has wisdom in the world, the creation itself, sympathizing with him. And that's the thought that Paul has here. The creation itself, he says, is looking forward to the manifestation of the sons of God. The creation itself is groaning and traveling. And I wonder in all that we refer to as the tragedies which happen in this world, with all the cosmic upheavals and so on, I wonder if there are any times when we think of Romans chapter 8 that these themselves are the evidences that the creation is looking forward and longing for and yearning for the new heavens and the new earth that God himself has promised. And as you sit in this church today Do you find yourself in this category? Do you find yourself a part of this chapter and a part of this passage in Romans chapter 8? Are you longing for deliverance from sin? Are you signing in this present evil world as a person who has something better to look forward to? Are you too Longing for the day. Are you anticipating the glorious liberty of the children of God? Are you awaiting the redemption of the body? Are you looking forward to the greater glory? Are you anticipating conformity to the image of Christ? And do you have just a word in conclusion that which will encourage you to hope That you are amongst these. There are two things here that encourage us to hope that. In verses 23 and 25, 24. Here we have the first fruit of the Spirit. The earnest of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit working within. Giving a foretaste of the glory which is to come. Surely there are times in your own life. When the Holy Spirit has given you a foretaste of what awaits you. Surely, my friend ah if you're a Christian I know that this is true the believer here today I know for a fact that this is true there are times when you've had heaven on earth ah yes there are times when heaven has come into your life that has been a foretaste of what awaits you but then maybe you're here today and you don't know what that is so then you cannot look forward with hope and that's the second point here. Not only does the Christian have the encouragement of the Holy Spirit as a fortress within him, but he also has this evidence. He has hope that will receive its fulfillment in heaven. We look forward in hope to what we haven't yet seen, he says in verse 24. And if we hope for that, we see not. Then we will wait with patience. For remember the idea he has. To remember that he's talking about, the, the, as it were, the, the birth pangs here. The Christian agonizing, waiting for deliverance. The creation agonizing, waiting for deliverance. And unfortunately, it so happens from time to time that that which people have looked forward to, they have been bitterly disappointed. Perhaps. Some has gone wrong, just the time of birth, and it has blighted and shattered and disappointed all their hopes. Unfortunately, that happens from time to time. But no such disappointment awaits the Christian with reference to the glory of heaven. No Christian will be disappointed. His hopes will not be disillusioned. He has the guarantee within him, the guarantee of the Spirit witnessing to his Spirit. And he has the guarantee of the Word of God, which cannot be broken. He knows that all that he hopes for will be fulfilled in the glory beyond. Do you have that hope today? And do you have that assurance today? As you live on in this world, let us pray. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, and bless us with thy presence and with thy power, with thy grace and with thy peace. Guide us along life's way and help us to look to thyself by faith. Come in your way to thee, have mercy upon us, and go before us, prepare us for our evening worship, and forgive us for Jesus' sake. (laughs) Amen.